Let me invite you to open up God's Word with me this morning to the New Testament letter of Ephesians. We're in Ephesians chapter 5 today, and because we have communion today, our children are invited to remain with us here. Children's Worship Treehouse will resume next Sunday, but as you probably know, Valentine's Day is just around the corner, and today we're uh, embarking on a new journey, a new series titled Dying to Love You, Marriage, Relationships, and the Gospel. And I trust that we're going to have a good time together seeking to hear what God has to say about these things. We want to hear about relationships according to God's Word, and God's got a lot to say. He's got a lot to say about love. Remember your first love? I remember riding the bus to school as a first grader and passing love notes to a little girl that sat across the aisle from me. Now, I don't remember at all what they said, and for some reason I don't remember ever receiving one back, but there was something about that girl that made me want to tell her how great she was. We were made for for love. We all want love. In fact, according to the Bible, our God is love. He is love, and He made us to enjoy His love and to experience the love of other people. He made us for our relationship with Him, and He made us to be in relationships with other people. But human relationships only thrive, only really thrive, insofar as they mirror the love of God. And so we want His love to guide us, and as we look at what the Bible has to say about His love, let's look at Scripture. Let's look at what the Bible has to say about marriage and relationships and the gospel. And we come today to Ephesians chapter 5, beginning in verse 21. So let me invite you, if you would, would you join me standing? All who are able, would you join me standing for the reading of, of God's Word, our text for today? Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. And that's really about all I've got to say about that. So let's, no, let's seek the Lord. We need to hear from the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for being good and gracious and kind and being present. Oh, Lord, we need you. We want to hear from you. So, Spirit, speak to us now. Instruct us now that we might understand you and your word and walk according to it. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to know, if you're you're visiting with us or or you haven't been with us in a little while, this text doesn't come out of thin air. You might think, why did he pick that text today? No, we're walking through Ephesians, and this is the text to which we've come today. And if we back up, if we can step back for a moment and consider this text in context, in its wider context, we see... The flow of Paul's instructions preparing the way for this. So what have we already seen? Paul has already thoroughly recounted God's reconciling grace that saves sinners. 
the incomprehensible love of Christ that led Jesus to stand in our place on the cross and the sovereign work of God that is now at work in his people. And all of that good news, it's really good news, all of that gospel news not only rescues sinners positionally, but also transforms sinners practically. That's what chapters 4, 5, and 6 of this short letter are all about, living out the new identity that God gives us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the lives of those who know the Lord's love, the lives of those who've been rescued by His grace, stand in stark contrast to the lives of the rest of the world. Our thinking, our speaking, our living, our doing, our relationships should look different For we know the kindness of the King. You see, those who know Christ's love give themselves away for the good of others. Those who know Christ's love, those who know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, give themselves away for the good of of others. In other words, if you want to know the secret to good relationships, be they friendships, dating, marriage, this is it. Two people who know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ giving themselves away for the good of the other. This is what God has done for us. That's what Paul is saying. And since this is what God has done for us, he says in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, follow God's example. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, when it comes to singleness and Dating, marriage, parenting, vocational relationships, friendships, etc. The secret sauce, so to speak, is following the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who gave his life for you, the one who died to love you. Jesus died to love us. And in response to his love, Paul says, God's people humbly serve one another out of allegiance to Christ. The people of God, those who know his love, those have been saved by His grace. God's people humbly serve one another out of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, relationships without humility are toxic, domineering, right? Transactional, unfit for those who know the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who know Jesus want to honor Jesus for He's good and He's gracious and He's worthy of our reverence. Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word for submit here means to arrange under or to order under. It was often used in Paul's day to describe military relationships between different rank in the military, connects this section to the previous one on on worship. So in the section just prior to this, Paul's describing worship. He's actually describing what it means to be filled with the Spirit. A Spirit-filled person lives this way and acts this way. And he's describing worship, and he naturally transitions from worship to household relationships, which was fitting because in the first couple centuries... Most Christian gatherings took place in households. So he's imagining a community of people gathered together, the family of God gathering for worship together in the home, perhaps in the homes of wealthy individuals. And he naturally begins to think of people who are in that congregation, in that community, and he then speaks into the particular relationships in the home. Paul's saying that one sign 
of being spirit-filled is submitting to one another. And right here, it's referring to voluntary submission. Paul's going to press a bit deeper here. And he's going to talk about three different particular types of relationships. He's going to address husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves. And in each of them, it's clear that one party is being called upon to follow or obey the other. But before even touching those particularities, all of us, all of us who are part of God's family, all of us who are recipients of His grace are told to humbly serve one another out of allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. It sounds a lot like what we read elsewhere in the New Testament. It sounds a lot like what we read in Philippians chapter 2, where we're told, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Who, oh, yeah, by the way, died to love you. So those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, those who know his love, give themselves away for the good of others. And where does this start? Starts in the home. Starts in the family, among those who are nearest and dearest to us. So let's consider marriage. God designed marriage to reflect the gospel of Christ. Paul's saying as much right here. We see that in the Bible. God designed marriage to reflect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Meaning this, that marriage is not the primary or ultimate reality. Meaning that marriage is not even an end in itself. Now, marriage is incredibly significant. We know this, not only for any stable society on earth, but also in God's eyes. He's got much to say about marriage, for he came up with it in the first place. This was not our idea. This was God's idea. We didn't think it up. It's part of his good design, his good design for us. And according to his word, it's a foretaste of God's unfailing and forever love for us. See, church, marriage reflects the gospel and it glorifies God. But it's not necessary for glorifying God. In other words, you don't have to be married to glorify God. People who are married, does it mean because you're married, you are glorifying God more than in others? In fact, elsewhere, Paul says it's good not to marry. For those who are not married can devote themselves more fully to the Lord. So if you're married, glorify God in your marriage. If you're single, glorify God in your singleness. Your value and identity and contribution to God's kingdom are not dependent on being married. Mother Teresa never married. Apostle Paul never married. Jesus never married. Need we say any more? Singleness isn't a curse. It's not a problem to be addressed or to be fixed, but a gift to many to be used for God's glory. But even so, marriage is good. I was clear, marriage is good, but it's, it's not God. And when we put a good thing in place of a God thing, we practice idolatry. The Bible's clear that human marriage is a symbol and sign of a much greater marriage. So Paul is saying here, even in verse 23, he says, For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is 
the Savior. In other words, right away in Paul's words on marriage, he, he moves away from human marriage to Jesus' marriage to his bride, which is the church, as the model for Christian marriage. Now, if that's all he said, if that's as far as he went, we, we could possibly miss what he's saying here. But he doesn't drop the analogy. He doesn't stop there. He continues to press in a bit deeper with that, even quoting God way back at the first human marriage, at the beginning of creation, when he created the first man and the first woman. He, he said in Genesis, he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And then Paul comments on that text and he says this is a profound mystery but i'm talking about christ and the church in other words human marriage is only a temporary symbol of the permanent and ultimate reality it's a a living parable it's a visible object lesson, a sign meant to display the magnificence of God himself and the spectacular relationship that he desires to have with us, with his people. The Bible teaches that marriage is about Jesus and his church. And that one day, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ will forever be with our glorious and good bridegroom. Talked to a couple in our own faith family, members of our own church this week that have been married 66 years. They should probably be navigating this path for us. They should be telling us, what does it look like to have a faithful and lifelong marriage? But even so, 66 years, we know that Jesus said that we won't be married in heaven. I don't know what it's going to look like. I, don't, I really don't know a lot of what heaven's going to look like, but I know Jesus said we're not going to be married, and as a married man, that sort of makes me sad. I, I love my wife, but I know, I'm confident that according to the Word, that whatever we have in heaven will be abundantly better, exceedingly abundantly better than, than what we have here. I don't, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I sort of see Ashley in heaven and, you know, give her a wink, but hey, remember back when? I don't know what it's going to be like. <laughs> and even thinking back on our dating relationship some years ago, I remember, I'm pretty sure those around us, particularly our families, our parents, thought we were crazy because we'd stay up for hours talking to one another. Most of our relationship when we were dating was long distance. We'd stay up for hours just talking to one another, catching up. They thought we were crazy. Perhaps you've been there, psychologists call this right, infatuation, saying that it lasts maybe as long as about 18 months or so, where you believe the other person just hung the moon. And as I thought about that, I, I thought, you know, I, w- I wonder what eHarmony has to say about relationships. I wonder what the secret sauce is according to a site like eHarmony. I'm not docking eHarmony or any other online uh, connection Point, maybe some I would, but not eHarmony. I know some of you met this particular way, and that's good. That's, that's, that's good. God has blessed that. But listen to what eHarmony says. They're on their home, their home page. They say, over two million have found love. Could you be next? They say the, the site most likely to lead to happy relationships, the, the right one may be waiting for you. What happens, they say, when you apply scientific research 
to dating behavior? Here's the answer. A whole lot of love. But this isn't destiny, it's deliberate. That's why every 14 minutes, someone finds love on eHarmony. You can have complete confidence that all of your compatible matches are looking for the same thing you are. Love that lasts. Now, think back, and maybe you could go back as well. I think back about when Ashley and I first started dating. For a number of weeks and even months, we had so much in common. We had everything in common. Like We, we had the same friend groups. We, we loved hanging out with friends. We liked games. There, we, we both liked sports. We were into sports, playing sports and watching uh, sports. Uh, her dad even liked to go fishing. Imagine that. I loved to go fishing. We had so much in common. And then months passed, somewhere around the time that we tied the knot, and it was like, son, we, we don't have quite as much in common. There's a lot that we don't have in, in, in common. Like she... Loves being around a lot of people. She's an extrovert by nature. I I like time to myself. I love the outdoors. She doesn't really like the smell of outdoors. Like, uh, she's chocolate. I'm, I'm vanilla. Like, she likes to eat out. I I love to be home. Like, we, we have all these. She, she likes diet drinks. Diet Coke now is Diet Dr. Pepper. See, you change. I like tea and coffee. Things in common, things not as as common. She wanted two kids and I thought I wanted three kids. Don't tell Eli. <laughs> What's the point that I'm making? We, we, I love my wife. I'm confident that she loves me. I cannot imagine not having one another in each other's lives. But neither of us were made to be the savior of the other. Neither one of us were made to complete the other. Husbands, your wife is not meant to be for you what only Jesus can be for you. And husbands, your, 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 your wives, your husband cannot be what only Jesus can be for you. But our culture has shaped us into believing the lie that if we can just find the right person, they'll complete us. Right? Isn't that the mantra of the day? We see it all over the place. And newsflash, the right person isn't out there because every person out there is a wretched sinner just like those of us in here. And if we're looking for someone other than Jesus Christ to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, then we'll be just deeply disappointed. But there's a God, a good and gracious and loving and kind and faithful and ever-present God, the only God who loves us with a wide and a long and a high and a deep love, a love that surpasses knowledge, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 19. And in marriage, he gives us a glimpse, God gives us a glimpse of that kind of love. God designed marriage to reflect the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ as faithful wives gladly follow loving leadership. So Paul is saying here, as faithful wives gladly follow Loving leadership. So Paul conveys, clearly conveys differing roles for husbands and wives. This isn't the only place that he does so, by the way. And he's saying that those roles intentionally, in God's good design, mirror Jesus' relationship to his church. Now that's significant. That's huge because up to this point in Ephesians, Paul's been making much of that relationship. Paul's been highlighting what it means to be in Christ and under Christ 
and part of the body of Christ and to be at peace with God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Like the relationship between Jesus and the church could hardly be stated any stronger than it is in Ephesians. And he's saying as the church submits to her head, her leader, to Jesus, so Paul instructs believing wives to submit to their own husbands. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. Now notice what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't say, husbands, subject your wives to yourselves, which would have fit the patriarchal culture of his day. It's not what he says. Rather, he calls upon wives, believing wives, to submit voluntarily to their husbands as to the Lord, to follow loving leadership that honors the Lord, not to rigidly follow a husband into sin, but to use discernment, to find out what pleases the Lord and to to do it. This isn't subservience or slavery, but rather wives gladly following the loving leadership of faithful husbands. Now, we'll pause right there and back up for a moment, take a wide span view, taking in what God's word has to say about this. Let me offer just three quick key biblical truths about about gender and, and marriage and, and roles. Number one, God equally values and deeply loves men and women. That's clear. It's absolutely clear from the word of God. God equally values and deeply loves both men and women. We could look back at the creation account where God created mankind in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them in his image. Number two, God affirms male headship in the home. And in the church, he affirms male headship or leadership, this is his design in the home and in the church. And all that to say, not nowhere else is it clear that God is calling upon men to lead. In other words, this is not a blanket statement about women's role in subservience to men. This is not anything like that. This is speaking specifically to the relationship of marriage between a husband and a wife. And number three, Jesus himself, his life, testifies and dispels any notion that submission implies inferiority. And this is a buzzword today. I know I'm walking on eggshells. Like this is, this is, this is a word that sort of sets people's bells off in our own day. It's contra to the culture that we live in, the times that we're in. Right, But Jesus' life himself redeems the very idea of submission. For Jesus came, the fullness of God in human flesh, right? The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, the one through whom all things were made, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and yet he comes to do what? To do the will of his Father. He comes to submit to his Father's will. Jesus dispels any notion that submission implies inferiority. But even so, the kind of leadership and authority that Paul calls for is a leadership that's practiced by Jesus. God designed marriage to reflect the gospel of Christ as faithful wives gladly follow loving leadership and secondly, as faithful husbands imitate our Savior's servant leadership. We're going to unpack this a bit more as we look at the verses that follow next week. But what kind of leadership are we talking about here? What's the model here? What's loving leadership and it's servant leadership? There's an ordered equality here to God's guidance for the marriage. Anybody watching any basketball yesterday? Watched a little bit of hoops myself. And one scholar points out, he says, our, our culture treats leadership in marriage like it's a jump ball. 
in basketball. Right? The, the referee tosses the ball up and whoever is bigger and stronger gets the possession. Leadership in marriage is more like an inbound pass. The referee has already assigned possession of the ball before it is thrown into play. In marriage, God has handed the ball of leadership to the husband and he is to lead. This is God's design. He, he's made and created and caused men to lead. So husbands, let's lead. Husbands, let's lead like Jesus Christ, imitating our Savior's servant Leadership. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. So how has Christ led his bride? He saved her. He gave his life for her. He spilled his own blood for her. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, right? Even the high king of heaven who took on human flesh came not simply to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Lord came to serve. Church, he came to serve you. He came to love and to call you and I to know and enjoy the riches of his faithful and forever love. Do you know his love? Do you know the love of this God who came to rescue you and to lay down his life for you, the love that sent Jesus himself to Calvary, carrying an old rugged cross on which he would take the judgment of your guilt and my guilt, of your sin and my shame, so that we could receive the reward of his righteousness. You see, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friends, if this is news to you, if this gospel news is new news to you, or news that's never really impacted you, then turn in faith today to Jesus. Turn to the Lord today, the one who gave his life for you and who right now is preparing an eternal place for you. Turn away from sin and trust in the Savior. Turn to the Savior today. Believer, do you, do you remember when you first turned to Jesus? Do you remember when you first recognized the grace of God that was given to you in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you remember when you first trusted the Savior, when the Spirit convicted you of sin and God granted you faith in Jesus Christ? Do you remember do you remember being swept over by his love for you? Well, church, remember that love. Remember your first love. Remember your first love. Remember Christ and devote yourself to him. Here's the best relationship advice we could ever receive. Run to Jesus. Run to the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who will never disappoint you, sin against you, or stop loving you. Love Christ first and always remember your first love. You see, in time, this church to which Paul is writing here, the church in Ephesus, in time, some three decades later, in the book of Revelation is written, this church is mentioned there. And Jesus confronts them saying, you've, you've forsaken your first love. You see, this church here forgot 
the incomprehensible love of Christ and stopped loving Christ as she once did. Oh, church, may we love Christ. May we rest in His love. May we be confident in His love. May we love Him first, for He loved us first. And as we remember His love, we'll begin loving those who are nearest and dearest to us in the way that He has loved us. For those who know the love of Christ, gladly give themselves away for the good of others. And so as we continue embarking on a journey into God's design for relationships, friends, let's follow God's example. As dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Well, friends, this is good news of a gracious God who has provided for us, who's given his life for us so that we could experience his faithful and forever love. And as believers this morning, we have the opportunity to remember that gift, to remember that gift with gratitude, with thanksgiving as those who have been saved by his grace. And we do so as we take the elements of communion. And so in just a few moments, I'm going to offer thanks to God and invite you to participate in communion. Believers, this is a gift. This is an instruction from our Lord for those who know and who follow Him to eat the bread and to remember the body of Christ that was broken, to drink the cup and to remember the blood of Jesus that was spilled to cover all of our sins. And so if you know Christ, if you've professed faith in Him, if you've trusted in Him for salvation, we invite you to participate. If not, let me just encourage you to take this time to to reflect on the gospel. Cry out to the Lord. Lord, lead me. Show me. I want to honor you. Show me what that looks like. But as our deacons come now that are serving, deacons, if you would come and find your place at one of these tables, let me encourage all of you, if you're participating in communion this morning, you've got a couple options. You can come to the table, any of these three tables, and be served here. We'd love for you to. You're welcome to eat the elements here at the table or to take them back to your pew and eat them in your own time. Or if you prefer to stay where you are or if you prefer to have a a prepackaged cup during these days, know that you have that option as well. A couple of our deacons will be walking around and will gladly serve you. Friends, let's pause together. Let's offer thanksgiving to God and then you come to the table. Let's bow together. Father, we pause now, Lord, to say thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son. Thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin and our guilt. Thank you, Spirit, for convicting us of our sin and opening our eyes to the need for Christ. And Father, as we take, as we remember, we pray that we would do so with thanksgiving and gratitude and celebration. We pray that we would do so with a desire to exalt the name of Jesus Christ. So, Father, lead us now, guide us now to fix our gaze upon you for the glory of your name. Forgive us where we fail you. Forgive us where we forget you. Lord, help us to remember your love and to walk in it. It's in the name of Christ Jesus we pray. Amen.